Good morning. I'm glad to have you here with us at Rivermont today. And let me invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 24 as we continue our study of the life of David through the summer. Following last week's look at 1 Samuel 17 and David's slaying of Goliath, David was on the top of his game. How proud the people were of him. They made up songs about him. They praised him. But King Saul envied him. I think it would have been relatively easy to trust in God's promise of a lasting kingdom after David had slain Goliath. The enemy was done. It was driven back. But now this once strong position began to appear weak. We turn from the heights of praise of God's people for David to the depths, literally, to David hiding in a hole in the ground in a cave near the Dead Sea. David's life felt like he had been thrust into an exile, hiding and yet needing to trust in the Lord. In those times in hiding in the wilderness, the Lord taught David deep lessons that shaped his soul to be one of humility and submission, not grasping for his desires, but patiently waiting on the Lord to bring about his best in his time and in his way. And taught him that our refuge is not in a fortified city, but it is in the Lord who is our refuge. It's a lesson that David would forget and learn and forget and learn, just like you and me. I wonder if you and I need that lesson today. Let's look at 1 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in the front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand out against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. After a few minutes, David left the cave and went out to speak to Saul. And we pick up David's speech in verse 11. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know that I see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of wickedness comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Stop there. Father, we ask that you would open 
the eyes of our hearts that by the power of your spirit we would see what you have for us today in this part of your wonderful and gracious word. Speak, O Lord. Your servants are listening. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. When our uh, family was at the beach earlier this summer, my kids taught me a life lesson. I guess that's maybe one of the hazards of being a preacher's kid. Everything becomes a sermon illustration, right? But they were out playing in this blow-up float out in the ocean, and, and I watched them again and again together try to get on top of this float. And the problem is that when they climbed on top of it, the float would sink down and, and it would pop out from under them and throw them in the water. And they did it over and over and over, and they laughed again and again. But no matter how hard they tried, their weight couldn't keep that float submerged. It was going to pop out somewhere, and it was going to upend their fun. It's true of our lives too. What we seek to keep buried in our hearts isn't going to stay there. Our private sins, our private loves, our private desires, they don't stay private. They show up in public. They show up in our public lives. The desires of our hearts are like that float. They're not going to stay down. Our private character, our private interior life is going to come out and it's going to affect our public life. There's no such thing as a private morality. The person we are on the inside comes out. Our private rebellion shows up. And our private submission shows up too. We see in King Saul a private rebellion that goes public. And it wrecks people's lives. Through this whole story of the young kingship of Israel, Saul struggled against David. We saw back in chapter 15 where God told Saul that he had been rejected from being king as God put his finger on Saul's rebellion and labeled it by by Samuel the prophet pointing it out to him in this private conversation. But that private information exposing that private rebellion in Saul's soul drove how this man lived and how he served as king over God's people. He was rebellious. We saw envy of David back in chapter 18 where the people praised David more than they praised Saul and he went ballistic. We saw Saul chase David all over the desert. Back in chapter 22, he killed an entire city full of priests because they had dared to help David. We hear of threats in chapter 23 of of him destroying another city if they helped David. Over and over again, Saul struggled with David, the the rival and the anointed rightful king of God's people. And in all of its trouble, it is as if Saul failed to see that his opponent really wasn't David. His opponent was God. He was rebelling against what God had said, what God had wanted. He was rebelling against God's will. And the heart issue within Saul was a heart of rebellion against the Lord. And that's not something that can be kept down, can be kept hidden, being kept private. Our private rebellions are going to affect our entire lives. And that's true because rebellion at its core is a refusal to receive God and recognize God as God. Rebellion is that sense in our hearts that says, I know what God has said in His Word, but actually, I think my way is better. A rebellious heart can't be kept private because a rebellious heart begins to arrange all of our resources around our rebellion. Whether it's how we use our wealth 
or how we use our power or our knowledge or our gifts or our blessings or our privileges. Whenever we live as if our ideas are better than God's, then we set ourselves in the place of being our own God. And it's rebellion. And it can't stay hidden. That private rebellion on a heart level against what God has says is best, that David shall be king, it showed up numerous ways in Saul's life. First, back in chapter 23, he misrepresented circumstances to make it seem like God was in his rebellion. In chapter 23, he, he suggested to his soldiers that, that God had sent David into this walled city of Kilah so that Saul could capture him and kill him in front of all the people. It can be so easy sometimes for us to baptize our rebellion and say, the Lord opened the door. But sometimes doors don't need to be walked through. Not all doors lead to holiness and righteousness. We can't sinfully take advantage of someone else and then suggest the Lord worked it out for me to have this advantage. For example, we can't pursue an illicit relationship with someone and then baptize it by saying, well, God wants me to be happy. That's rebellion. We can't lie and cheat to get ahead and get an advantage in our workplace and then say, well, God clearly wants me to be successful. It's rebellion. And that that heart rebellion that says, I know what is good and what is best for me and God does not. So I'm going to pursue what I think is best for me. Saul's rebellion, sometimes it's ours too. We also see Saul's private rebellion show up in his complete disregard for the lives of other people. He disregarded men and women who were made in God's image, men and women who had value before God and should have mattered to Saul, their king, on God's behalf. And yet he completely disregarded them. How many of his men did Saul send to their death by pursuing his private little rebellion against David? Chasing him all over the desert. How many of his men were slaughtered in that war? There were numerous cities whose residents were murdered as Saul killed anybody who gave David as much as a piece of bread. Life didn't matter to him because he was pursuing what he wanted. It was rebellion in his soul. There are so many other examples that we could take from these chapters of Saul's rebellion that goes public, but I think it would be better for you and I to ask, I wonder where our private rebellion shows up in how we live. Where does our private rebellion go public? Is it in permission that we give ourselves to sin sexually when we watch or think in the privacy of our own hearts, watch pornography, and we think, eh, nobody's really getting hurt by this. Friends, that, that private sexual sin shapes how we view the opposite sex. It affects our ability to experience intimacy with our spouse. And it also harms and it scars those who are making those images that we are watching in private. That private rebellion goes public. It affects our lives. Or how about the, the secret offenses that we hang on to when someone has slandered us or slighted us and we can rebel against a forgiving and gracious and tender Lord by thinking, I need to pay that person back. The one who tore me down, I need to tear them down in return. That rebellious lack of grace and lack of tenderness can divide families. 
It can divide small groups. It can divide churches in the ways that we treat each other by hanging on to those old wounds in rebellion against our forgiving Lord. Or how about the long-held racist sentiments that linger in our hearts that we try so hard to keep hidden and keep buried? Those long-held racist sentiments that cause us And our first reaction to hearing about the shootings of black men in our culture this week, our first reaction being, well, he was probably a thug. He probably deserved it. What had he done? What does his rap sheet look like? Before we have compassion or grief or sadness over the loss in these families, it's rebellion against God that leads us to that place. Or that makes us want to clutch our purses more tightly in the presence of a black man. Or makes us want to keep our eyes on little black boys in the store because they're probably up to no good. Those hidden and private sins are rebellion against the Lord who has said that all of His image bearers equally deserve respect and dignity because they're made like Him. And He values them no matter their color or no matter what associations we might attach to someone's race. They have value and are worthy of our dignity and respect that we offer to them. Our supposedly held private rebellions in our hearts are going to show up in the way that we treat other people, the way that we have suspicions toward other people. Friends, we have to repent. We are called to expose those rebellious attitudes of our hearts to the Lord in confession to Him, confession to one another, and then in repentance, turning away from those sins. Hiding them doesn't work because the power of sin is on the inside. It's in our hearts. It it affects our characters. The fact that our sinful actions come from within our sinful and rebellious hearts means that change has to start within our hearts. Sin is always a matter of the heart first before it shows up in our bodies. It calls upon us to confess and repent and lay hold of Jesus' forgiveness that starts in our hearts. Rebellion in my heart is what causes my, my body to sin. Then there's no such thing as a private morality, a private rebellion. The sins in my heart are going to pop out. And so healing must begin with repentance and faith in the blood of the Lord Jesus who cleanses us deeply, who cleanses us in our soul. People like you and me, people who would rather keep our sins hidden and confess them. But the Lord exposes our hearts that He might cleanse and forgive. Not only does private rebellion go public, but also private humility, private submission goes public. We see that in David. As Saul gathered his best to pursue David into the Engedi, the desert mountain beside the shore of the Dead Sea where there was a spring that goes forth and and shepherds bring their sheep there to feed them. There are caves right there along the shore of the Dead Sea and that's where David and his men were hiding. Saul must have felt very secure and very strong as he was backed up by his 3,000, his choice soldiers. These were were Saul's special forces soldiers. He went on the hunt for David. And he went to this cave to answer the call of nature. He was private. He felt secure in his pride. 
And yet, he had to make himself vulnerable. He had to disrobe. The idiom there in verse 3 is literally says he had to uncover his feet. It means he had to take off his robe and lay it aside so he could take care of what he needed to do. And David's men saw this as an opportunity to end this war. In verse 4, they engaged in inventing a promise that's not recorded anywhere else in the Bible. We do the same thing sometimes. We think, well, if that's not what the Bible says, that's what it should say. These men said, David, surely God has given your enemy into your hand that you might kill him. You can imagine them quietly rooting David on as he crept closer and closer to Saul, ready to pounce on him and end this war once and for all. But David didn't do it. Instead of grasping for King Saul, he rather grabbed the robe and cut off the corner of the robe that was the symbol of Saul's kingly authority. And as David cut off the corner of that robe, it was a sign to him that he had been cut off from the Lord and cut off from the throne, just as Samuel had suggested back in 1 Samuel 15, verse 28. The cutting of the royal robe marked the transfer of power from the house of Saul to the house of David. But David had a conscience attack about it in verse 5. He knew he shouldn't have done it. Why? Because David still considered Saul the Lord's anointed. No matter what Saul was doing, he sat on the throne not by accident, but by God's will. No matter that Saul was not a leader worthy of his respect. Doesn't that challenge us? There may be leaders that we have a very difficult time respecting and we find it so easy to attack them, either in our mind or heart, verbally, and yet they deserve our respect. It wasn't Saul specifically that David respected, but the God who put Saul there. The Lord's anointed held a a unique bond with the Lord. He was set apart to rule on behalf of the Lord, such that to attack the Lord's anointed from his place was akin to seeking to remove the Lord from his place. To strike at the robe in David's mind was to strike out at the Lord, he suggests in verse 6. But think about what David was giving up here. He was living in a cave. He was running for his life. He was was separated from his wife. And all it would take is one strike of the sword and it all would be over. No more hiding. No more dirt floors. No more life on the run. Imagine David crouching in that place in the dark wondering, is this temptation or is this the Lord's good gift to me? How How do I decide what to do with this man? And yet by refusing to take Saul's life, David offered his heart to the Lord and he concretely sought to live by faith in God's plan. To trust in God's word, God's promises of David being on the throne, God's promises of justice that would not require David to sin in order for God's promises to be brought about. David humbled himself to wait upon God's time and the Lord's care to bring about his will of putting David on the throne. It's one of those marker moments of life. A fork in the road. Which way am I going to go? Do I have to grasp for myself or can I humbly refuse sinful means to gain an advantage? It's a question we all should ask 
Can I trust God in bringing about His best for me without requiring me to sin? Without me having to grasp in order to bring it about? Instead of rebelling against the Lord's best, we see David cast himself before the Lord in humility and submission. Look at verse 12 where he said to Saul, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge between me and you. In verse 15, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Do you hear David's deep and abiding trust in that moment in God's justice rather than really his trust was in the God who brings justice? Places trust in the person of the Lord who, who sought to bring about His best in His way. And David didn't need to take action to murder and to sin. He didn't need to take vengeance for himself because the Lord would bring it, he believed. He could receive the Lord's good gift of the throne rather than seizing it for himself. I wonder where you and I struggle to entrust our futures to the Lord. For Him to bring about His best in His way, in His time, in His means, rather than grasping for ourselves. Might it be with respect to defending yourself against someone's slander or someone's attack? Perhaps it is in waiting for the Lord's timing for a job or a circumstance or a relationship or an issue to get resolved. Maybe it's waiting on the Lord to settle a dispute. One thing is for certain. If we're going to live in humility and submission before the Lord and before others, then in our hearts the Spirit has to teach us no longer to see jobs and relationships and even our good name as our right. But instead they are good gifts from the Lord for us to enjoy as long as we have them. Our private submission to Jesus, the Spirit's work will help us develop a healthy detachment from all the things that we might grasp for ourselves. And we can instead receive His good, hand, good gifts with open hands. See, our sin in our hearts comes out when we pursue whatever we want. The world tells us that we can use whatever tools we have to get whatever we want. But that's not our way. We tragically saw it in Dallas this week too. We saw a man seek vengeance and racial justice as a coward. As he used the tools of violence to attack police officers who actually were protecting the protesters, protecting against their presence. Friends, violence isn't the answer if justice and peace are the goals of our lives. That's the way of the world. It's not our way. We are to be a people who entrust our future to the Lord and pursue justice and peace in His way, not in the violent way of the Lord. We have an opportunity as the church to demonstrate to the world a humility and a trust in the Lord bringing about justice rather than thrashing about, entrusting ourselves to these violent tools to get what we want, even if it's a good end. We have an opportunity to use the tools that God gives us of love and trust and patience and peace. As Martin Luther King said, the cost of hate is far too high for us to pay. We have an opportunity as the people of God to show the world a trust 
in a God who will establish His kingdom in peace in His way. We don't have to seek sinful means. We don't have to seek to grasp for vengeance in our own hands in order to bring about the Lord's peaceful kingdom. We simply use the Lord's means to bring about His peaceful kingdom. David's humility and his submission to the Lord truly points us to the one who refused to grasp for himself. But he entrusted himself, as Peter says, to the God who judges justly. We saw it in Matthew 4 as the devil tempted Jesus by offering him a painless kingdom, a throne for the taking as if it were the devil's to offer. He extended to Jesus the throne for ruling if he would only bow down and worship the devil. It wasn't going to take the cost of of bearing sin. It wasn't going to have to be a a, a revolution with blood. There would be no cost of, of taking onto Himself the wrath of the Father against sin and against sinners. No separation from His Father. It could be all glory and no cost. It was the temptation the devil put before Jesus. Yet Jesus resisted a crown without the cross. As He was doing the work of the Lord which led Jesus to the cross that brings us our salvation by His blood. And it was in His quiet submission of going to the cross in our place that brings to us that that very public affirmation that by faith in His work, trust in His work, we can rest as His children. Because Jesus paid our price. We can trust Him in the ways that He leads us in life to lead us into His goodness. If He gave us His life, then will not also with that, will He give us all things that we need? That's what the Apostle Paul says. Our rebellion nailed Jesus to the cross that you and I might walk in freedom and humility and submission and trust as His Spirit changes us from the inside out and makes us into people who are willing to entrust our lives to a good and loving and powerful Father. So what do we do? I think we just need to get off the float. Stop trying to hide and cover up and press down deep your rebellion in hopes that nobody else sees it. Stop thinking that there's a problem out there. But rather, Lord, where's the problem in here? Not where's the brokenness out there, but where is that private rebellion that I see in my own heart and soul and confess that the Lord is the God who frees enslaved hearts, extends to us blessings and life and grace that we can only imagine. Get off the float and let the Lord change you from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would enable us no longer to seek to live life by trying to push down our private rebellion like we try to push down a float in the water. But instead, Lord, we ask that You would enable us to open up our hearts and our lives and expose our need before You that You can change us from the inside out such that the world sees there is a different and a better way. There is a way of grace and trust and humility and submission to You because You are a good and gracious God. We do ask for Your justice to come in this world. We do ask for Your peace 
to come in this world. But we pray that you would give us as your people the strength to pursue your justice and your peace using your means. Lord, make us a people to testify that you are a good and gracious God and that you are powerful to change us from the inside out. May our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, our city see your work within us as you rip away from us our private rebellions and place within us a heart of trust for you. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.